Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Hello everyone, this is BS Uncovered. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Olivia and today we'll be talking with Dr. Anya Samek from the University of Southern California. Hello Anya, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Hello, good to be here. So we'll be discussing your paper, Dynamic Inconsistency in Food Choice, Experimental Evidence from Two Food Deserts. So for anyone who hasn't read it yet, could you briefly explain what the paper is about? Sure. So it's essentially using the field to test economic theory, and in this case, the theory of dynamic inconsistency, which is the idea that the types of choices that you make for your present self may differ from the types of choices that you make for your future self. And so a lot of that work has been done in laboratory experiments where you're asked about how to distribute amounts of money between today and sometime later, and then you see whether people switch. But when economists apply that theory, they actually apply it to the field. So they say something like, if you were to be given a choice between a candy bar and an apple for next week for a snack, you'd be more likely to choose the apple. But when the day actually approaches to choose your snack, people often switch and choose the candy bar. So that was actually the premise why we started working on it. And specifically in food choices, because that example gets used a lot, but there was not evidence for that in the field. How did you come to work on this particular topic? So as I said, I think I'm, I'm interested generally in testing economic theory in field settings. I think dynamic inconsistency in particular is a theory that is widely used to explain a lot of different types of behaviors, such as food choice, also exercise, and uh, financial saving decisions. And this paper is jointly co-authored with Sally Sadoff and Charlie Springer. How did you come to work with them in particular on this project? And more generally, how do you go about choosing your co-authors for papers and research? Uh, Sure. So Sally and I actually go back quite a ways. We were postdocs together at the University of Chicago back in uh, 2010. And I had also worked with Charlie back then on a project together with my advisor and at that time his PhD advisor. So they're more of kind of legacy people I've worked with for a long time. These days, the way I think about choosing co-authors is trying to find people who have complementarities to what I do. So I tend to be the person who's in the field, running the big field projects, getting the grant money, hiring staff. And then I tend to hire, uh, tend to work with people who have different types of skill sets that can contribute to the paper. Right. Okay. And for this experiment, you partnered with two different grocery stores, one in Chicago and one in L.A. How did you manage to convince them to work with you? So it's always tricky with field experiments how you end up making partnerships. With Chicago, I had been at the University of Chicago working on other projects on food choice in school lunchrooms, and there was a person who had received her MPP, her master's in public policy, from the public policy school in Chicago who had heard about that work, and she was starting a small format grocery store in a food desert, which is a low-income area in the south side of Chicago. And she actually asked us whether we had ideas for research that we could do there. With LA, I then several years later moved to the University of Southern California. And there, again, I just started reaching out to people saying I'm doing different research in the field related to food choice and helping people make healthier decisions. And then we got in contact with the person 
in this chain of grocery stores who manages the health uh, promotion types of activities. And the project uses the methodology of natural field experiments. Could you briefly discuss what sort of precautions and ethical considerations had to be taken into account in the design and execution of the two different field experiments? Sure. So I think there's always an ethical consideration about whether you would want to have someone participate in a study when they don't know they're in an experiment. I tend to think that if they're doing the types of activities they normally would be doing, that it's fine to also be collecting that data. We see grocery stores all the time collect data on customer food shopping behavior for marketing and so on. What we did in this study is we partnered with the grocery store to do food promotion programs where the stores essentially provided free baskets of of food that people could choose. And then we stationed research assistants at the grocery store to invite people to participate in the project. And we were very clear about kind of all the steps that were involved. So we asked them to do some surveys. We told them we'd be delivering the groceries. We went together with a grocery store worker to place those deliveries. In LA, we actually used the grocery store van to do that. So it was all very much seamlessly integrated with the other types of promotions that the store might run. I think that kind of helps. So you don't want to conduct a study in which you're asking people to do things they normally would not be doing in their everyday life. Obviously, subject risks are important anytime you're thinking about ethics. In this case, choosing some foods is not posing any kind of risk. Uh, all the foods are purchased from the store. The, the store uh, grocery workers help us to deliver them and so on. So really, the risks are no different, I think, from everyday life. We don't ask a whole lot of confidential questions or anything like that. Sure. And the experiments in Chicago and L.A. took place several years apart. At what point did you decide to conduct the second field experiment in L.A.? That is an excellent question. So I ran the experiment in Chicago during the first couple of years when I was an assistant professor at Wisconsin. So I actually was busing my RAs down to Chicago to do that study. We finished the study. We started presenting it around. People seemed to like it. We got referee reports back from one of the top five journals and we got a rejection. But we had five referees, I think, and a lot of the things that the referees were concerned about were actually things that I thought I could change if I ran the field experiment again. And one of the reasons I think that the referees were so concerned about design aspects was because we found something quite surprising in the study. And so what you might want to find is that the people who are inconsistent or the people who choose their mind through, uh, change their mind through time will also be the ones to demand commitment, where commitment is sticking to your previously ordered choices. So this is one of the things we were testing in the study. And that would say, suggest a good policy implication would be to allow people to commit to pre-order food, which would help them make healthier choices and avoid their dynamic inconsistency. And we actually find the opposite results. So we find a negative correlation between dynamic inconsistency and commitment demand in the sense that the types of people who would inconsistent do not demand commitment. The types of people who are consistent who don't change their mind are the ones that are demanding commitment more. And so the referees are kind of skeptical of the result and thinking about like, why are you sure that that's, that's really the result? Maybe there's some spurious things going on. And so at that point in my career, I had just moved to LA. I had a bunch of other papers in 
kind of solid but not top five journals. And I thought for me personally, if I could get this paper into a top five journal, it would be a better boost for my career, especially given what the profession places, the value profession places on top fives. And so I thought, like, why not run it again and fix everything and see if we still get the same results? So it's risky because if you don't get the same result, then you step back and you say, like, what's going on? Like, how do I explain that now? But on the other hand, I think if you do replicate it, that is a really strong point. And this is also around the time that the replication crisis started to be much more at the front of people's minds. And so that was why we decided to go ahead and replicate it. And were there any sort of changes in the experimental design that you made and why just compared to the first field experiment? So that's exactly, we we made a bunch of changes. So the first one was the referees were really concerned because when we were having people make these choices about foods, the healthier, we basically, we had some healthy foods they could choose from and some unhealthy foods that they could choose from. And the healthy foods in Chicago were things like apples and bananas and strawberries and plums. And the things in the unhealthy stuff was all these packaged foods like packaged Twinkies and Hershey bars and packaged cookies and things that were not perishable. And so the concern the referees had was like the healthy foods were all perishable, the unhealthy foods were not. And so could that explain the inconsistency that we were finding? That was one kind of thing. So in LA, we chose mostly perishable foods because this theory of dynamic inconsistency is about consumption. So you want people to actually consume the foods right away once they purchase them. So the unhealthy stuff, we had things like puddings that were made by the store and had to be consumed right away, not like the prepackaged things and so on. The other kind of thing, for example, we had this question on commitment. So in the Chicago study, Basically, after you've gotten some food deliveries over a series of weeks, we ask you whether you want to commit to your previously ordered choices or if you want to continue to be able to change your mind. And so one of the concerns was maybe there's social preferences involved there. So if you choose to have the option to change your mind, that means that the RA and the grocery worker have to bring all this food to you again and let you change your mind when we deliver it to you at the door. And so the referees were concerned about that. So we changed it where we made it say, doesn't matter up to us either way. It's really up to you. Here's the two choices and so on. And so that those are kind of one of the two main things. There was a bunch of other smaller things that we did as well. So we did add some more survey questions. We made the experiment longer. Uh, that really helped us to look at consistency in dynamic inconsistency and so on. All right, great. And we briefly touched on this earlier, but would you say the main message of the paper evolved over time? It actually, so I think the main message stayed exactly the same. And so we were surprised that we found very, very similar results across Chicago and LA, especially because the totally different populations the LA experiment was actually conducted primarily in Spanish. So we were in a, in a primarily Spanish-speaking area of LA. Totally different foods, totally different types of shoppers, a lot of changes to the design based on what the referees had suggested. And yet the main kind of message remained the same. We did add kind of uh, some additions after we got all the data that we could have also added originally, but we added some structural estimation that my co-author Charlie Springer was headed, headed that up. Um, but in general, I think the main the main message actually remained the same. Besides what we might have already discussed so far, is there anything else that you would have done differently in this project? This is a project where I actually 
don't think I would have done anything differently. If the results have turned out differently across the two cities, I probably would have had lots of things I would have regretted, but the results turned out well. At that point, this is one of my later projects. So I think we conducted it like in 2014, the first experiment, but I had other field experiments I had run for years before that where I could have done things differently. And so I learned from a lot of those mistakes when I ran it this time around. All right, great. I'm going to move on to more general questions now, just in terms of being doing research, writing papers. So you've worked with many different partners on field experiments in the areas of health, education and charitable giving. Do you have any advice on how to find and select local partners? Sure. So I think the biggest thing is really making sure you align your incentives with the incentives of the partner. So I see a lot of graduate students or just people new to field experiments coming in and just saying, here's my research idea. And then sending a bunch of emails out to people saying like, this is my research idea. Do you want to partner with me? And I think you really have to step back and figure out what's in it for the partner. And that is goes a long way toward making sure that there's interest from the partner side to work with you. So a good example, like places where we've gone wrong, for example, is when I worked with school lunchrooms back early on, we would talk to the cafeteria workers and we'd say things like, we want to try to get the kids to eat healthier food. And like, we want to run this intervention and we we'll see if these nudges work to get people to eat healthier food. And then the cafeteria workers would get a little bit annoyed at us because they think the food they're serving is pretty healthy. And basically, we're coming in from the ivory tower and telling them that they're not feeding their kids healthy food. And so you really have to reframe it. You come in and you say, hey, we're working on food choice. We'd love to hear your thoughts about what types of things do you wish your kids would be choosing in the school lunchroom, like when you give them choices over foods. And then they'd say, well, actually, we have this requirement in the U.S. where everybody has to take a milk. And so we've got this white plain milk that's lower in sugar. We have this chocolate milk, which is pretty high sugar. Most of our kids choose chocolate milk. We'd really love it if some of them would choose white milk. And so I have a series of papers where we're really testing nudges different types of nudges and different types of information to get kids to change their food choices. But we do it about the milk choice because that's what the cafeteria workers have told us they're interested in studying. And so that makes it a little bit better because now we can say, look, we're studying the thing that you guys have told us is important. We're finding some things about what types of nudges work. Now you can use that in the future. And then at the same time, we get some research out of it. Similar with the grocery stores, for example, we approach those not with, I'm trying to study dynamic inconsistency, but with what types of food choices are you thinking you want to have grocery customers make? We think that there's this idea that if we have people pre-order food, that'll be really kind of a nice way to get people to choose healthier because they'll stick to, they'll choose healthier foods for their future self. And then we kind of explain it that way. So explaining things in lay language I think also is important. In terms of selecting someone who's willing to work with you, I think a big part of it is not to spend too much time going down one path. So in the sense that it can be really frustrating to start working with someone and then spend weeks and weeks and months having conversations with them and start developing your whole research design and then learn at a later date that the thing is not possible. So I've tried to think a lot about ways to mitigate that. One of the ways that I think is nice is to get the field partner to have some skin in the game in the sense that you basically, one of the things, for example, with the charities is, great, let's work on a field experiment on charitable giving. Why don't you share some data with us about 
baseline rates of charitable giving. And then that puts it in their court where they now have to produce something for you. And if they're not willing to do that, obviously there could be reasons why they couldn't do that, like legal reasons, but in general, they can come up with a way to do an MOU and say, okay, we're going to share this data. If they're willing to share data, I think that is a good indication that they're going to be willing to continue working with you. If they're at a point where they're not even helping in that front, then spending a lot of time going down that road only to learn a year later that they're actually not interested is, is really a time waste. So that's that's the other thing. I have a couple of uh, papers on this actually. So I have a, we can, that we could link later. So I have a paper in food policy on how to work with grocery stores. And then I have another, I have a chapter in a handbook that just came out on field experiments that have a, has a section on how to find local partners and how to work with them and how to get them to work with you. So we, we could link to that later. Definitely, great, thanks. That'll be really useful. Just got a couple more questions. So how does a standard day of work look like for you when you're say writing up a paper versus when you're running an experiment in the field? Sure. So. Back when I started doing field experiments, which is now 10 years ago, I used to be in the field for all of my field experiments. So I would go to the field, make sure things were set up, running things, and so on. Now I do a lot less of that. So I, I now try to get grants that fund the time of research assistants, undergrads, grad students, and then full-time RAs who then carry out the field experiments on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's because that frees me up to do more of the writing. But I think it's important at the earlier stage to be involved in the field because then you can actually see kind of what types of things are going well and aren't going well and maybe be able to change things that aren't working. I think that's important. So to me, now I spend a lot more of my time analyzing the data and writing up the results than I do in the field. And I spend a lot of time writing grants. And lastly, what single piece of advice would you give to early career researchers trying to write a publishable paper? So I think my biggest advice is to think about the contribution of the paper in relation to the field and to be able to place the paper in the literature in the field. So I'm often refereeing papers in which the author says, this is the most novel thing ever. There's a couple of related research papers and they do X, Y, Z. We do Q and that's why we're awesome. And I think then it's hard. It's, it's a lot better to try to place your paper in the literature saying, here's what the literature has shown. Here's where its limitations are. And this is how we fill that gap. And this is why it's important to fill that gap. So really that's a reframe in a way, but it's really important not to overlook what's been done and not just to think about what's been done in the sense of, is my thing novel relative to what's been done, but how does my thing contribute to what has been done? I think those papers tend to be better because then I can immediately understand what the contribution of the paper is to the field as opposed to trying to dig around and figure out whether that novel thing really is important. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been really insightful. Sure, it's been fun. I wish everybody luck with their field experiments.